G'day everyone and welcome to this RACGP podcast on drug and alcohol withdrawal. My name's Rob Page, I'm addiction specialist and a GP and I'm speaking with you today from Gadigal land. In primary care in Australia, many of our patients drink alcohol and use drugs and many of us are good at regularly encouraging people to reduce their substance use to safer levels. But when our patients put their hands up and say that they want help to reduce or stop their use, but they're worried about withdrawal, lots of us find this situation challenging. So in this podcast, we hope to provide a bit of a Withdrawal 101 to cover the basics relating to drug and alcohol withdrawal and to demystify it a bit. So we hope to explain what it is, how to identify it, how we as GPs can help, and when to refer on for specialist assistance. I'll note here that while many refer to it as detox, we'll mostly be calling it by its more formal name, withdrawal management. So I'm lucky enough today to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Deborah Zador, Chief Addiction Medicine Specialist with the New South Wales Ministry of Health. So you get both of our perspectives and we'll be having a bit of a to and fro on this subject. So we're gonna be chatting through the new New South Wales clinical guidelines for withdrawal from alcohol and other drugs, the withdrawal process itself, discussing planned and unplanned withdrawal with patients, and options for managing withdrawal and post-withdrawal care for patients needing AOD treatment. So firstly, welcome Deborah, and I wonder if you'd mind starting off by letting our listeners know what withdrawal is exactly. Hi, thank you Rob, and that's an excellent question to open our podcast with. Um, Withdrawal is a clinical syndrome that occurs following cessation or reduction of use in a substance dependent individual or in a person who has maintained prolonged heavy use of the substance. Uh, The symptoms uh, can cause clinical distress or discomfort at the least and so are ideally managed with medically supervised support such as the managed withdrawal we will be talking about for this podcast. Um, The signs and symptoms, of course, will vary with the problem substance use and they can vary in intensity and duration. So do check the new fully updated guidance uh, on the AOD website, uh, which clearly sets out the clinical characteristics of withdrawal for each substance. During the podcast, I'll be mainly referring to planned uh, withdrawal. Uh, And this refers to where the treating clinician and the patient have agreed to undertake withdrawal and typically set a date for that. However, occasionally withdrawaling occur in unplanned circumstances. And so my colleague Rob will talk a little bit more about that later on in the podcast. Um, Just to point out that uh, managed withdrawal can occur in a number of settings. Uh, They can very easily occur in the community based at either home or in an outpatient setting. Um, More complex withdrawal uh, can be well managed in inpatient settings such as uh, hospitals or an elective withdrawal management unit um, and some residential rehabs uh, can offer that too. Thanks Deborah, that's really nice uh, little summary of what withdrawal is. So could you tell us what are the goals of a a planned withdrawal management episodes for our patients? Well, certainly for the patient, the goal of undergoing withdrawal is to cease drug use or at least to cease substance use for a while. Take a break from this. The purpose of managed withdrawal care is to provide appropriate support to enable the patient's withdrawal to be completed safely. And we do that by three or four key ways. It's very important to support the patient's discomfort from withdrawal symptoms with appropriate and adequate symptom relief and management. Uh, It's important to minimise the likelihood of any medical risks or complications associated with withdrawal, such as um, seizures during an alcohol withdrawal. Uh, It's a great opportunity to treat any comorbidities or complications from chronic long-term use, such as liver disease or chronic infections. Um, uh, But it's also very important to ensure that the withdrawal uh, management is accompanied by a post-withdrawal ongoing care plan uh, and support. For many patients uh, trying to quit drug use, the most difficult part for them 
is going through withdrawal in their minds, it's getting through withdrawal. Once they've done that, they'll be okay. But we know that often getting through uh, a managed withdrawal is the easy bit and trying to maintain abstinence after drug use um, for the months or years to come is actually far more difficult. And it's this period of time, post-withdrawal, that craving set in and risk of relapse can be high. So for this reason, uh, it's important that um, the GP are offering this and the patient who agrees to enter withdrawal, very clear that it's not an effective standalone intervention and that withdrawal by itself oh, typically confers very few long-term benefits. No, no I, think that's, I think that's a great little, uh, yeah, little summary of the, the goals that people come to us with. And I suppose it's one of those situations where people come to us with their goals and we, we want to ensure that uh, their goals, are, that, that we can hopefully facilitate them reaching their goals, but ensure that their acute and short-term goals are in line with uh, what is going to provide them with medium and long-term gain. So we want to give them the optimum likelihood of, of getting where they want to be. So usually that's long-term abstinence and long-term improved health. Mm-hmm. And if we're just going to say, okay, great, let's do a short-term detox, um, unless we're setting them up for success on the other side of that, they might go through repeated yeah. detox episodes without significant benefit. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's it's sort of really making it clear that we need to do that groundwork initially, don't we? Yes. Yes. So we're helping someone through a withdrawal management episode. What sort of risks might that put them, uh, what, what sort of things might that put them at risk of? Well, firstly, it's uh, very important to appreciate most withdrawals and less complex withdrawals are managed very safely and easily in the community. However, there are occasional risks and uh, one of those will be the unanticipated um, medical risk that might occur with withdrawing from specific drugs and uh, seizures from uh, a poorly or inadequately managed alcohol withdrawal can occur. I Probably more importantly is inadequate symptom relief uh, for the patient going through withdrawal. Uh, this is a can be a stressful time for patients uh, going through the initial days of withdrawal. And if they feel their symptoms are not uh, adequately medicated or otherwise supported, and they may take a decision to leave prematurely, discharge themselves, uh, and return to drug use. Uh, And the problems with this is that, one, it makes them more apprehensive next time round about considering a a second or third attempt at withdrawal. Uh, Two, if they suddenly return to drug use after what they thought was um, a poorly managed episode of withdrawal, uh, they put themselves at risk uh, if they've been abstinent for some days or weeks during the withdrawal episode. So uh, it's it's actually quite easy to uh, minimise that risk of inadequate symptom control by simply ensuring the patient's well monitored and uh, the provision of typically diazepam is adequate. Uh, the final risk, of course, is what Rob and I just spent a little bit of time talking about previously, is that a managed withdrawal without ongoing post-withdrawal uh, care and support plan can result in the risk of uh, relapse to drug use uh, because of the high risk of onset of cravings and time. So it is always important to talk with the patient about their preferences for support after they've completed withdrawal and to offer them various options that might be uh, suitable for them. Uh, encourage attendance at AA or NA and uh, ongoing pharmacotherapies that support abstinence, such as naltrexone and caprosate for alcohol dependence or even opioid dependence. Um, resi- residential rehab can be a great option for some person who've completed successfully initial withdrawal but wish to take the opportunity to do more therapeutic work on underlying issues uh, in a supportive environment, such as some residential rehabs. Uh, and of course, there's always community-based alcohol and other drug counsellors and other support in the community. And of course, regular review by yourself as the caring GP to see how they're going at regular intervals after they've ceased drug use. 
Yeah, no, thank you. That's that's really very clear in terms of the the options available to people to to optimize their likelihood of staying abstinent after detox. And I think when we're when we're doing these risk assessments, it's so important, isn't it, that we recognize some people are, are coming in with a lot of knowledge. They might have gone through five, six, seven withdrawal episodes before, but particularly I think for those treatment naive people who've never been through it before, educating them around the potential yeah. risk, but, but not overstating them because, I mean, gosh, regard yeah. like certain substances, there's a, a minimal risk of, of a withdrawal syndrome, but some people drink heavily and seem to go through fairly fairly minimal withdrawals. So if we're sort of charging in saying, oh, if you if you're detox, you're going to have a seizure or you're going to have DTs and then it doesn't happen to them, they're, they're less likely to trust us the next time around. So I, I think it's, it's perfect yeah. what you said there that ongoing regular monitoring and informing them of the potential risk but that will assess them regularly along the way make sure they're going to be comfortable and and if we identify any concerning features that they might be at risk of those more complex things like seizures like dts that we can then refer on or, or escalate our treatment mm, yeah that's absolutely right rob right. so look it's my turn to ask you a question um great does a GP need to know about their patient when considering withdrawal management? Yeah, I, I think this is a great question. I thought it was useful to break it down into a, a, a couple of situations. I think that whenever we're seeing people with a, for the first time in primary care, I, I in my in my practice, it's always been most useful to have a, a good long consultation to start with and perform a, a comprehensive history, physical examination, appropriate investigations, including looking at people's risk factors like alcohol and drug use and people's uh, sexual risk behaviours and those other potentially more marginalised or stigmatised behaviours. So uh, to let people know when we have those initial assessments that we're going to be asking about a variety of things, including things that might be more or less sensitive to ask about, but it is just to ensure that we're covering all aspects of a person's health. And most people, I think, respond to that. Of course, the other situation is someone's coming in specifically to say, okay, actually, I, I'm, you're my regular doctor and I want help with my alcohol or with my other drug use. And that really opens the door up to talking about alcohol and drug use itself because they've, they've given you permission to do, do so because that's the issue they've come to you with. Mm. So regardless of the situation in that initial assessment, we want to focus on the substance of concern and, and most commonly in Australia, that's alcohol, but it might be methamphetamine or cannabis, opioids, benzodiazepines. So regarding that particular drug, we want to know how often are they using it? How long have they been using it for? How much are they using when they're using it? And what's the route of administration? So for alcohol, it's almost always going to be consuming it orally. But for methamphetamine, for example, a person might smoke it or they might inject it. Heroin, they might smoke it or snort it or inject it. So uh, checking on those things. Figuring out what their recent substance use has been. So is, is the reason that they've come to see you because their substance use has been escalating? So say how much they might have been using in the last few weeks or months versus their long-term pattern of use and how long it's been a problem for. We then need to establish, look, do they have physiological dependence or risk of withdrawal? And, and a great way to find out about that is to ask, look, how often do you have a day off? Or if they haven't had a, a day off for a long time, what happens if you delay your use to later in the day? If you're someone who drinks in the morning, if you delay it till after midday, do you start to or have a day off? Do you get the shakes? Do you get the sweats? Do you become anxious or insomnic? Or for example, if you're if you're using methamphetamine for long periods of time, if you stop, do you do you crash? Do you become exhausted and feel pretty low and and don't get out of bed for a few days? So, assessing for those physiological withdrawal features specific to that substance. Now, if someone's treatment experienced, figuring out what might have worked for them in the past, have they done a withdrawal mm. management episode before? Have they spoken with a doctor or an addiction specialist? Have they tried a, a pharmacotherapy, counselling, NAAA groups, rehab, and and establishing what hasn't hasn't and hasn't worked? Because the things that have worked for people in the past often will work again, just based on their physiology and their psychology. And then those general things about someone, so their physical background, physical medical history, their psychological history, uh, any medications they might be on, any uh, medication um, dependency or, or non-prescribed medications mm -hmm. that they might be used, ensuring that we're asking about all substances, including tobacco. Mm -hmm. And then finally, checking up on their, their social situation. So are they housed? Mm -hmm. Do they have 
friends, family, social supports, NDIS workers or carers, other people around that might be able to help them through a treatment episode. And mm. it sounds like a lot to go through, but I think that if someone is coming in requesting us that, that we help them with a withdrawal management episode or we're seeing them for the first place, I think all of this stuff is is reasonable to ask about, particularly mm. if they want help about alcohol and drug use. And, and I think people will very much understand us wanting to go into this much detail and generally they appreciate it because not everyone asks all of these things and it is very pertinent mm. to where they've come from and, and what might help them to get where they want to be. And and I just want to quickly mention as well that once we've taken that thorough history, performing a targeted examination and then performing appropriate ex- investigations is, is important mm-hmm. too. If we're going to give people medications for management of alcohol withdrawal specifically, we need to know whether or not their liver is functioning well to choose an appropriate benzodiazepine. And I think that's, I'll, I'll probably leave it up. That's a, that's a whole lot of words about an assessment. Uh, is there anything you want to add to that, Deborah? No, look, I, I think, Rob, that's, that's comprehensive and it needs to be done so that the GP can decide the best setting for it. Can it safely be done at home? Or, wow, this uh, a few risks here. Um, past history of several uh, alcohol delirium episodes here, I've, better arrange for an inpatient admission uh, or uh, it, it's also important to establish again the, the kind of support that might be helpful afterwards to maintain a successful outcome from withdrawal. Um, uh, uh, a question also and Rob forgive me if you've already mentioned this is how soon in the morning does a patient reach for uh, drugs or alcohol as that's also a good measure of um, the severity and likelihood of withdrawal. So. I uh, would also just like to briefly mention that sometimes people will come in and they won't want to take the time to give us all of this information. And that can be a tricky one. They'll come in, they're sweating bullets, they're shaking, and they say, Doc, I'm in alcohol withdrawal, I need some Valium, I need you to help me, I need you to stop stop, stop me feeling sick from this. No, I don't want to answer all these questions, I, I just need something to help me with yeah. this. And And that can be a particularly challenging situation, and I would urge people to are on the side of explaining to people that it, it's really important that we have as much information as possible. It's not simple as simple as just giving someone pills to, to manage a withdrawal management episode and that, look, if they are unwell and they can't take the time to do this, it's, it's quite probable that actually they need help in an emergency setting so that they could have this thorough assessment done and the blood tests and everything completed in a situation where it can be done uh, more urgently than we might be able to provide safely in primary care. All right. Rob, that was a crucial point to raise at this time, the unplanned presentation, uh, appealing to the GP for urgent help, typically pills, medicines to get them through that, and how important it is that we consider what the real risks are and and not to rush in immediately or even turn them away. So uh, that was a great point to raise at this time. Yeah, we want to make sure that we're doing things that are going to provide people with a likelihood of achieving abstinence and immediately giving someone Valium when they're in acute withdrawal without any planned follow-up or aftercare. It's very, very unlikely to help them to get to to a, a period of abstinence. All the evidence shows that such mm. a withdrawal management episode almost invariably leads to relapse. So, and, and I think it's mm. reasonable to explain that to people. We shouldn't be saying, sorry, Matt, I can't yeah. help you. You've got to go away. But we should also be saying, look, I want to keep you safe. Uh, I, I can do a thorough and comprehensive assessment uh, and, and we can make a plan for you. But but I also want to ensure that you're well in the first instance mm-hmm. and, and let's mm-hmm. get you to a place where you can be managed safely. I think you've expressed that and covered that incredibly well. It's such an important point when we talk about withdrawal because, as we said earlier, they're not always planned withdrawals. No, exactly. Um, and I guess that bring, brings us on to our next question. I, I guess I've already flagged that not every person who stops or reduces their substance use experiences withdrawal. When, when does a patient need withdrawal management typically? Yeah, sure, Rob. Um, Many patients will identify for themselves that they need some help in stopping substance use that has become increasingly out of control for them. It's causing conflicts or breakdowns in family relationships, increasing financial stress, trouble with the police and and so on. Or you may have become aware that your patient has significant problems with substance use that they may not have explicitly raised with you 
uh, to seek help, advice or support around. Uh, and, and this can happen because you might get a hospital discharge summaries that mentioned your patient uh, uh, underwent uh, withdrawal management while they admitted for a fractured femur or uh, an episode of pneumonia. There may be other indicators in your clinical information uh, records around your patient that indicate uh, increasing um, medical health social problems with increasing drug use. Um, it's a, an opportunity to maybe at the right time to speak with the patient about this substance use, to have a talk with them around how they feel about it, do they have a goal with it? Are they still for the moment um, intending to continue to use? Have they thought about maybe they should stop or reduce use? Uh, and motivational interviewing is uh, uh, a very positive and supportive way to speak with patients uh, without directing the conversation or in a sense telling them what they need to do. And done well, it leads the patient to their own conclusions that maybe the time has come to maybe have another look at their substance use and talk more to you as their treating GP about what their options are. Uh, when talking to patients around drug use, uh, and, and of course we're talking about dependent drug use here by and large, but not always, not always. Sometimes it's good to get in before uh, fluorid dependence uh, becomes an established way for them. But uh, uh, it's always important to remind that if, even if they do want to stop drug use or alcohol use, not to do it suddenly and without support uh, because of, uh, again, risk of some complications like seizures, so on, uh, hallucinations, or, or otherwise a very stressful time for them. So whilst encourage them if they've made a decision to review their drug use or consider withdrawal, uh, that they work in partnership with you to work out the best way, the best setting for withdrawal and the best post-withdrawal um, support and care. Uh, now, the other uh, scenario of when patients may need withdrawal, and we've touched on this before with unplanned withdrawal, is that some patients in your care are heavy or dependent drug and alcohol users. They don't intend to stop but they suddenly find themselves at significantly increased risk of withdrawal when they have an unexpected hospital admission for uh, an unrelated reason, such as you said before, fractures, infections, uh, heartbreak could be anything, and they find uh, without any intention on their own, they are suddenly cut off from alcohol or drugs, and then um, uh, the hospital then finds themselves in a position having to manage that. So that's also... Um, an opportunity to reflect with the patient on that experience and what their thoughts are and how you can offer support with them. I, I actually think now's a good time to actually talk about dependence and um, substance use disorder. We've defined withdrawal. What do we mean by dependence? Um, it's a disorder of uh, the regulation of psychoactive substance use, uh, which arises from repeated or continuous use and is characterised by a, an overriding centrality or priority of acquiring, experiencing and recovering from drug use every day. Um, the patient experiences this as a strong internal drive to continue to use despite knowing they've experienced harms of their uh, drug use, for example, overdoses, despite uh, neglecting usual activities or responsibilities, um, despite knowing they've had an inability in the past to cut down or cease use, um, loss of control, unable to stop at one drink or episode of drug use, uh, cravings, and of course, dependence is well known to many uh, people as a condition whereby tolerance sets in, where the same amount of drug use no longer brings the same desired effect, uh, or they find they have to keep increasing their amount of substance use to maintain the same effect, and of course withdrawal features and using the substance to relieve the same withdrawal symptoms. I do have another question for you, and it's one of these situations that arises Oh, look, not infrequently, both in, in GP land and in my specialist work. So, so let's think about the fellow who came in to see me earlier and 
he's, he's, he's sweating and he's got a low grade temperature and he's feeling pretty anxious and pretty awful with himself. He's looking a bit dehydrated and he says that he's in uh, he's in alcohol withdrawal. But I mean, could could it be someone something else? How how can I tell the difference between yeah. someone coming in with withdrawing from a, a drug uh, versus someone who maybe is is septic or unwell for other reasons? What do you have any tips on on that? Sure, sure. This is um, a, another great question for us to discuss, Rob. Um, the thing about the signs and symptoms of withdrawal is that they're not unique to withdrawal state and they're not diagnostic of it. Um, anxiety, sweating, insomnia, agitation, nausea, tachycardia occur as clinical features in a number of medical and psychiatric conditions. So it's a diagnosis by exclusion, and it's important to ensure that the signs and symptoms you're seeing in your patient cannot be better attributed to another medical condition. Uh, One useful thing to assist you when trying to sort out the likely cause of these sweeter symptoms the patient in front of you is presenting with uh, is to... I establish uh, a history of dependence or prolonged heavy use in in the patient, uh, at what point they stopped their substance use and the duration of time since cessation of use to onset of symptoms. And if the um, the sweeter symptoms appear pretty well within 24 hours of uh, last substance use in a dependent person, you can be you can be fairly confident uh, the signs and symptoms are due to withdrawal, uh, and of course there may be some simple uh, investigations you can do. It might be useful to um, breathalyze them, I, and they may be in withdrawal even though they're still positive on alcohol. They may be experiencing a, a reducing level of alcohol, and that can still cause withdrawal in severely dependent patients even whilst alcohol is still present in the body. Yeah, no, I, I that that's a really good point. I, I guess I've seen people who are still sitting there at around about point point oh eight or so. So someone who certainly wouldn't be able to drive, but they're they're well and truly down the path to withdrawal. So I think that's a that's a great point. And I guess in in my practice, in say with a fellow like that, I think going through and doing a good examination, looking perhaps for others sources of sepsis maybe checking his wee have you listened to his chest looking for skin infections and if you're comfortable there's no signs of other things then as you mm. say a recent and good history of, of of alcohol dependency and then sudden cessation um, makes it the most likely diagnosis but just just mm. keeping that open mind it's, it's about keeping that open mind isn't it that there could be other things going on and we shouldn't get too narrow in our uh, in our diagnosis right oh, that that's exactly right Rob. well does a GP talk to their patients um, about withdrawal? What are your tips and experience and advice here? Yeah, I, I guess I've, I'm lucky enough to have done it a lot over the last decade or so. And I think one of the first things to remember is that when people are coming to us and talking about alcohol and drugs, they're, they're, they're super diverse. I mean, people who use alcohol and many people in Australia use alcohol and drugs from a wide uh, variety of backgrounds. And some of them have spoken with clinicians about this stuff a lot in the past. Some of them never have, and they might be particularly shy or, or bashful or, or concerned about what their doctor's going to think that they're coming in and saying that they've got a, a substance use problem or that they're, they're using substances in certain ways. So, I think we need to ensure that we're non-judgmental, empathic and respectful, and we're, we're doing our best always to avoid anything that might stigmatise that, that person or their behaviours. People who use substances in, in whatever ways often are particularly sensitive to language that might be, be that might be perceived as stigmatised, stigmatising, so ensuring that we're, we're being patient and kind and respectful with them at all, at all times. And I think the conversation can can flow from there, depending on on how that discussion's come about. If someone's come in and they've said, I want to talk to you about withdrawal, great. That opens up the conversation and you can hear the patient, what their needs are, where they want to get to. Or if we've identified, like through one of those situations that you described before, that someone might be at risk of withdrawal or say they're drinking two bottles of wine a day and we might say, hey, do you want to try for giving your body and brain a break from alcohol? How about I help you through a withdrawal management episode and mm-hmm. give you some medicine to make you more comfortable? We do a thorough mm-hmm. assessment and give yourself a bit of a break and maybe try to 
have a long period of abstinence or get yourself to a period where you're drinking a bit less and maybe having a few days off a week, the, the way in which the conversation has come about will shape where you go from there. I think when we have those discussions with people, they will they will then both have their have their previous goals and things they might want to achieve and hopefully through motivational interviewing shift, I guess, more so that we've got shared goals and then being able to reduce or stop the substance use or get it to a safer place. But I think we always need to respect someone's position and their their situation and if they're not ready to cut down or stop we, we should almost always yeah respect that and acknowledge that but just let them know that we leave the door open to having a conversation about reducing or ceasing at some stage in the future and of course if they are ready and they want help then we can uh, keep on keep on talking to them and and hopefully using the information we've got today and from those new clinical guidance documents uh give them a bit of a hand or, or refer them to someone who can yeah, thanks, Rob. That was so well advised and explained. Um, You're welcome. I, uh, anything yeah. you want to add to that? Uh, no, I think you've covered it. I love the uh, important reference to stigma and discrimination and how we need to be sensitive to that. Um, drugs and alcohol use for uh, a lot of our patients still embarrassing and shaming for them. And uh, it's... Uh, it's such an opportunity for us to be supportive and helpful when they do open up and want to talk about how they can um, get some help with quitting drugs or alcohol. So hmm. that was great. So next, I, I guess I, I flagged at the end of my answer there that sometimes we can help someone out, but there are certain situations where, regardless of where we are, we, we need to ask other clinicians for help. So when might I say I'm a GP working in a in a clinic in a in the community when might i need to refer my patient to other services such as uh, inpatient withdrawal management service or a residential facility yeah that that's right and that's why taking um a thorough assessment beforehand is so helpful here when uh determining where is the uh the most appropriate place to um conduct the withdrawal um, in general, inpatient management, and that can be an inpatient hospital uh, or uh, an elective uh, specialist withdrawal management unit, um, it's advised for medically complex patients. Those are patients who, along with uh, um, drug or alcohol dependence forms, also have comorbidities of poorly controlled or severe cardiovascular disease, uh, or severe unstable mental illness. Uh, uh, and of course, high risk dependent patients, those patients who in the past have had severe or complex withdrawals requiring um, inpatient management, such as a history of uh, alcohol delirium, withdrawal delirium, usually known as DTs. Uh, such patients require more intensive round the clock observations and uh, pharmacotherapies to support them. I, it's not always medical or, or psychiatric um, complications, though. Other patients may require uh, inpatient or residential rehab uh, settings. If they're alone, they're isolated, they have no access to family or carer supports, uh, they're homeless, uh, uh, or they live in really unsuitable accommodation to consider attempting a, a withdrawal at home, such as living in a group house with other flatmates who are still using drugs or alcohol, or uh, otherwise uh, it's inappropriate to crowded, cold, cramped, inaccessible accommodation. So they also would not be um, suitable for a home-based or community-based withdrawal. Then, I think, um, Rob, what would you add to that? Oh, yeah, I, I think you've made some like pretty comprehensive mm. points there. I, I think you're flagging the fact that certain social situations are, mean that people are far better supported mm. in, in inpatient or hospital withdrawal management services if someone's experiencing de domestic yes. or family yep. violence or uh, there, are, there are other sort of ch child welfare issues or, or the pregnancy or whatever else it might be. Mm. There, there are certain si situations where people are really well served by coming in because so often those inpatient or residential services have access to 
people like social workers or psychologists or counsellors or people who can link folks in with rehab, nursing staff who are very experienced in talking about alcohol and drug withdrawal. So they, they can be really vital. I'll, I, I will flag that I guess this this podcast is going to go to a whole bunch of rural and remote areas too. And look, I'm a, I'm a fellow who works in inner Sydney, although I have worked in rural, rural and remote New South Wales and I'm aware that there are many places without access to to inpatient withdrawal management units, which make can make things really very tricky. Um, mm-hmm. And in those mm-hmm. those sorts of situations, then ensuring that you're phoning your local addiction medicine specialist within your LHD or phoning the drug and alcohol specialist advisory service for, for advice and referral pathways is important because I think, yeah, people sort of hear, look, no, there's no local withdrawal management service. So sorry, we can't help you. That's that's really tough for them. So just exploring all those options that might uh, might be available further afield because they mm. usually are. It just can take a little bit more mm. digging to find mm. them. And thank you for highlighting uh, a whole range of other issues that need to be considered when selecting suitable uh, settings for withdrawal. So that was great. I... Well... How uh, does a GP support patients once they are in withdrawal? Well, if we've done all of that groundwork in the first place, that really good, thorough and comprehensive assessment, then we've got an excellent understanding of the situation that they're coming from, the social supports that they might have in the community and the resources that they have at hand and so before we've even gotten the po- them to the point where they're going through any type of withdrawal, we've ensured that their environment is clean and tidy. It's a, a calming type of environment with access to things like cold packs and hot packs, adequate nutrition and hydration, that it's a physically comfortable environment, all of those things that make that withdrawal discomfort easier to bear. We want to ensure that both before and during a withdrawal management episode, we've advise people about risk but also allay the fears because the vast majority of withdrawal management episodes are yes. fairly simple yes. and straightforward okay. and not complicated so letting mm-hmm. them know about that mm-hmm. and providing them with that psychological support positive encouragement and that, that regular feedback and contact about their progress and how well they're doing and even involving family members in that sort of having them there along for the ride both at home or family members or carers at home and in the consultation so they're mm-hmm. aware of what's happening through the process. And and even beforehand, letting people know about things that can be done. So if there is sleep disturbance, what can be done to manage that? Because that's quite common with many, many substances that people might be withdrawing from, how to manage cravings. And once people are maybe over that hump of the first few days of withdrawal management, the other things like the three D's, the sort of delay, distract and decide when someone's experiencing cravings or urges, sort of just being aware that there's a craving or urge and then just delaying making a a decision, distracting oneself for a minute or two before making a decision about whether to use a substance. And that's been really, really nicely shown to to assist people in managing things like cravings or urges. And we won't go into a lot of detail about the medications, but I think Mm. particularly with certain substances, like alcohol withdrawal management or, or benzodiazepine withdrawal management, there's there's really very good evidence that medication helps a lot and that people do far better getting through those first few days and achieving short-term abstinence if they have structured dispensation administration of doses of benzodiazepines. And they're really nicely described in those mm-hmm. new withdrawal management guidelines if you have a look at the, uh, the, the, the relevant sections there for those substances. I think as well that... If there are family and support people around, people do far, far better if they've got someone there to to assist them when they're like, if they're not feeling particularly great, but if they are feeling really, really rough, having someone to help go to the shops and get them whatever they feel like eating or drinking or just get them a cold flannel to put it on their forehead, um, whatever else it might be to assist them, just that bit of support makes a big difference. Okay. Rob, I think um, you might have answered... um some of the points be covered in my next question to you, which is how does a GP monitor the safety of patients in home withdrawal and when should a GP seek special advice or emergency care? Yeah, I think this is a good time to to flag that managing someone's withdrawal in the community, so in the primary care setting, is mostly 
simple and straightforward uh, if a good and comprehensive assessment is done in the first place and if we've sort of excluded those other more complex patients and also if we make sure that we've got adequate resources to do it in the first place. So while it's mostly pretty simple and straightforward, we have to make sure that we're putting enough resources and time into both seeing the person in the first place, but then being able to check in on them, if we're talking about alcohol withdrawal management, daily for those first few days. So whether it's yourself as the GP seeing them or whether it's the practice nurse seeing them, and we want to make sure that particularly daily for the first few days, we're doing someone's temperature, their heart rate, their blood pressure, assessing the hydration state, making sure that they're getting getting fluids down and, uh, and not becoming too dehydrated. And ideally doing some sort of obje- objective measure of alcohol withdrawal, such as either the, the CWA, that's the Clinical Institute mm-hmm. for Withdrawal Management the, uh, for, for alcohol, or uh, the alcohol withdrawal scale assessment. So that allows us to identify, say, if someone's withdrawal syndrome might be becoming worse or escalating. It provides a really nice amount of uh, both assessment and structure to identifying when we may need to refer on or get someone more uh, more intensive treatment potentially uh, outside of the primary care setting. Mm, yeah. It also can help to provide structure around how much diazepam to administer and how frequently. And uh, yeah, look, I guess I've already flagged that sometimes people do become more unwell and need to be referred on for additional treatment. That doesn't happen very often. That's definitely the exception rather than the rule. But you want to make sure that you know those referral pathways in advance. So whether it's just knowing the local drug and alcohol treatment service or the emergency department where someone can be seen for these things or phoning the drug and alcohol specialist advisory service, which is available 24-7 for advice, just just knowing where someone can go should they become more unwell. Deborah, I'm not sure if there's, there's anything that you want to add there. Sure. Rob, I just want to underline the point you made about in most cases, uh, particularly with alcohol withdrawal, it's simple and uncomplicated and goes uneventfully uh, for the vast majority of patients in uh, general practice care. Uh, However, one has to be always vigilant for the one or two or three more complex or risky ones that either need um, more regular review, a bit more diazepam or reassurance, or simply need to be referred to more uh, specialist settings for that. And again, check the Ministry of Health's AOD website for um, all the information you need about how day-by-day to um, support and plan the patient's withdrawal full diazepam protocols and other pharmacotherapy support monitoring advice are certainly clearly set out there. So, yeah, so I think that brings us on to my, my next question for you, which, look, it's similar to a question I've already asked about, about mm. withdrawal, mm. but I suppose it's to, to expand it really to, to talk about all, all drugs. So we've spoken mostly about alcohol so far, but for, for all different drugs, is, is withdrawal management suitable either in primary care or in specialist care for all drug-dependent patients? Yeah, look, thanks, Rob. Um, Withdrawal is not always suitable uh, for dependent patients. Um, There will be cases where withdrawal is just not the right choice for the patient. Uh, uh, Attempting cessation of use may be more risky than ongoing use, uh, depending on circumstances, the risk factors and the motivations of the patient. Um, As we've said before, not all dependent patients wish to cease their substance use or have a goal of long-term abstinence. And sometimes that can be challenging. We we can see the the harms, the complications of our patients' ongoing drug use, and we feel they could so benefit from withdrawal and an ongoing care plan, but that simply may not be where your patient's at. Uh, And so it's so important uh, to assess with your patient where they're at, what they want to do about it, when they might be ready for help. Uh, And if they say, no, I I don't want to quit yet, I don't want to do it, uh, there are other options to offer that patient. You can talk about reduced use of the substance. Uh, We can talk about safer use of the same amount of substance. Um, And they can be alternative options that your patient may be more ready to take on board and think about. Um, 
again, the patient's preferences are apparently talking around options and ongoing plans for their uh, drug or alcohol use. Um, Sometimes it's actually reasonable to decline certain withdrawal management for your patient. Um, this, um, this may be because uh, their preferred type of withdrawal is too risky. Um, a patient may decide, yep, uh, I'm alcohol dependent. And actually, what I want to do is just uh, do my withdrawal at home with my family. Uh, however, your thorough assessment has indicated last couple of times they attempted that they had um, severe and complex withdrawal. And so you'd be perfectly within your right to say, um, uh, withdrawal at home is not the best option for you and we do need to support your decision to withdraw by looking at a more supportive or uh, uh, specialised environment to um, help you achieve your goal of withdrawal. Yes, I, I, I agree totally. Uh, there's there's so many times when, mm. and understandably, people want to stay at home for their withdrawal management, but... Mm, yeah. this is the time isn't it where we need to say as doctors look yeah unfortunately this isn't something we're able to facilitate it's it's not it's not clinically appropriate it is too risky and i'm afraid that we will do whatever we can to support you to an inpatient environment because that's that's what we need to do as doctors yeah just if say if someone's yeah. using opioid drugs regularly say they're using heroin yeah. or if they're using yeah. using fentanyl regularly uh and they would like to stop using and they want to detox they're not interested in going on something like methadone or buprenorphine but they want to go cold turkey with your assistance with some medicine uh i'm mindful that 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 might hold certain risks oh look it's uh the first thing that comes to my mind when you say that is just how usually overwhelmingly unsuccessful cold cold turkey detox from opioids is uh the withdrawal symptoms, while it's not objectively high risk or severe in many cases, can be extremely um, subjectively distressing for the patients. They have a myriad of symptoms, aches, pains, chills, fevers, back pains, cramps, diarrhea, uh, insomnia, agitation, uh, and it, it can be uh, quite a distressing experience for them, which can typically trigger uh, abandonment of the home uh, the cold turkey detox and resumption of drug use. And, of course, the risk there is they may find that the usual amount of um, illicit opioid use uh, after a few days or weeks so of uh, withdrawal can be uh, more risky or more dangerous and they may be more vulnerable to overdose in that case. I, Pharmacotherapies, particularly for opioid dependence, are incredibly effective. Our opioid maintenance therapies such as methadone and buprenorphine and with the really exciting new addition of depot buprenorphine, which enables greater flexibility for most patients, are overwhelmingly supported by the evidence base as the most effective intervention for opioid dependence. And the beauty, of course, is that a patient can commence treatment without any need to undergo withdrawal first. Um, oh, well, um, certainly in the case of methadone, there, are, there is a need uh, to be in a bit of mild withdrawal to commence buprenorphine, but most patients manage that pretty well too. So uh, I would be very reluctant to endorse any patient's decision to do cold turkey, sudden home withdrawal by themselves from opioids when the likelihood is that it's probably not going to be effective mm, yeah and i think knowing that different substances have different risk or safety profiles in both in use and in withdrawal if, if there's either a situation where you're unsure lots of guidelines will provide advice around what to do in each situation but again phoning for advice is always is always advised because yeah we don't expect everyone to know everything about about withdrawal yeah <laughs> that's right what other choices do patients have outside of uh, drug and alcohol withdrawal? There are lots of them. Uh, different people are at different stages of change regarding their substance use. And for those mm. people who want to undergo withdrawal management and move to reduce use or abstinence, fantastic. But for those people mm. who might want to gradually reduce their use over time there are pharmacotherapies that might help them get to that point or for someone who 
acknowledges maybe that their substance use uh, is is causing them some issues, but they're not either willing or ready to address it. There are there's lots of advice that we can give to people mm. to help to improve their health regardless. I always like to say that regardless of someone's use, someone's substance use choices, everyone deserves really high quality healthcare and to be provided with advice to allow them to optimize their mm. health. So say for example, who someone who's using methamphetamine, they're injecting methamphetamine a few days a week, we might encourage them to, to smoke it instead of injecting it because that provides yeah. them with uh, an improved safety profile. We might encourage them to reduce the amount that they use when they're using ensuring that they're using sterile injecting equipment mm -hmm. if, they are, yeah. if they are going to continue to inject. Um, if there are injecting or sexual health risks from a bloodborne infection or virus point of view or an STI point of view, encouraging the use of condoms and PEP and PrEP because people who use certain types of drugs are, are more at risk of contracting STIs and uh, bloodborne mm -hmm. infections. There are some infectious diseases that can be immunized against, like uh, like hepatitis B. So making sure that all of our patients, regardless of the substance use choices, are vaxxed against hepatitis B is a, is a good idea. And just doing those regular checkups for people, saying, look, I acknowledge that you're using these substances in this way, and I've already described to you that these are the risks around it. I'll continue, you know, I'm your doctor. I'm going to continue to recommend that you mm. cut down and stop your use. But even if you don't, I still want to continue to support you. So if they're using alcohol, checking their liver function and their blood tests regularly, mm. examining their liver, if they've got cirrhosis, doing regular ultrasounds and getting them checks, checkups as need be. Um, if they're using stimulants regularly, checking their blood pressure, their ECG and having listened to their heart, being mindful of things like stimulant-induced cardiomyopathy, assessing their psychological health. Mm. There, there's a whole lot of things that we can do with and for people who continue to use substances, even if they don't want to cut down. So it's, it's that harm reduction framework, isn't it? So acknowledging yes. that people might make decisions that put them at risk of harm and helping them to reduce those those harms. And and finally, I'll, I'll just mention those, those peer representative yeah. and support organisations in New South Wales. We've got the New South Wales Users and AIDS Association, and there's, there's one, I think, for just about every jurisdiction in Australia. And they're, they're an organisation that's, uh, that's made up of uh, and for people who use uh, who use drugs or who may have, may have lived experience or may have HIV or an experience of AIDS, mm -hmm. and they provide information and advice for people who use by people who use. So it's it's not for everyone, but many people find that really really very useful to talk to people who have gone through things like them, mm -hmm. who have experienced substance mm -hmm. use like them, and they've got some excellent harm reduction advice online and. And, uh, and information and resources on their website there too that I think is useful for both clinicians and for patients. Oh, that, that was great. I think this is a particularly important part that you've just discussed with our listeners and that is there is so much uh, GP can do for their patient with substance um, use uh, other than simply proffering withdrawal withdrawal abstinence uh the, the, all the options and the opportunities you've outlined i think is a really important takeaway message from this don't feel that if uh, your patient doesn't want withdrawal that therefore you have nothing else to offer you, your patient there's so much more you can do to reduce the risks the harms it's an opportunity for for a general physical health checkup, it's an opportunity to let your patient know of all sorts of help out there from peer support to uh, specialist services, to, uh, information online, uh, all sorts of things that can enable a patient to continue their substance use but more safely and, and in partnership with yourself over seeing it and taking the opportunity to check in with them how they're going and who knows maybe one day they may decide um i've got a really good relationship with you uh and i think i'm ready to start talking about um maybe stopping and maybe getting some help with uh, withdrawal with you so uh really important part of the podcast i think you've just dealt with well Mm. Oh, thanks, Deborah. You know, I've always, I've always found just sort of speaking fairly openly and and as non-judgmentally mm. as possible with people about these things just means that down the track, if someone does decide to make mm. change, they feel comfortable speaking with you about it. And I'll mm. notice well that the majority of people who undergo let's let's focus on alcohol withdrawal management again, who undergo alcohol withdrawal management, 
they want to do it with their GP if possible. I mean, heck, people who want to go on methadone mm. or buprenorphine, if possible, they prefer to do it with their GP for the most part. They mm. prefer to keep everything under one roof um, rather than having potentially to open up about their stigmatised behaviour uh, to, to another clinician or to another individual who might be not as not quite as accommodating or understanding as you. So I think if we're practising well in primary care, it, uh, it does help to take that approach. I will. Uh, mm. I, I just forgot one more harm reduction thing that we can do for people <laughs> as well that I want to mention because New South Wales and Australia have done really well in this, is that if someone is using opioids in any sense uh, or if they're around other people who are using opioids, oh, yeah. encouraging them to have yeah. take-home naloxone on hand. Yeah. If you're not aware of what it is, Google take-home naloxone New South Wales. It's providing people with access to a little kit containing a, a dose or a few doses of naloxone so that they can identify an opioid overdose call for an ambulance and administer naloxone while help is on its way. And it's been shown to be both very uh, both very acceptable and feasible for people who use drugs, but, but effective mm-hmm. as well. And people's lives have unquestionably been saved through this intervention. It's free mm-hmm. in many pharmacies and health services around New mm-hmm. South Wales. So get people onto it if they're using opioids. <laughs> That's right. Uh, great we got that in as well because it is rolling out across Australia the uptake's increasing and it's effective um, yeah so <laughs> we're, we're almost we're almost at the end there I think yeah. uh, so uh, yeah. where Deborah if, if I'm a GP and I'm in the community and I need further support or information around alcohol and drug withdrawal where should I go Right. Well, in the first instance, uh, the new revised uh, guidance on management of drug and alcohol withdrawal is is on the AOD website, and that information will be made available during the podcast. Um, And for more immediate uh, clinical advice, there is the New South Wales Drug and Alcohol Specialist Advisory Service, DASAS, and this is a free 24-hour-a-day telephone service that provides general advice to health professionals who require assistance with the clinical diagnosis and management of patients with alcohol and other drug-related concerns, and that number will be made available also. I'll, I'll flag there just a little, uh, little disclosure. I actually provide advice on the DASAS line. I really enjoy it. I, I think it's a privilege as a GP to be able to mostly speak with other GPs about these sorts of things. And I'd really strongly encourage people to give it a call if they've ever thought, gosh, I, I wonder what to do in this situation. You'll generally get a CNC first who are very experienced, very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. And if you ever want to speak to a drug and alcohol specialist, you get 24-7 advice from a very experienced, knowledgeable drug and alcohol specialists. And uh, it's, yeah, look, it's, it's free conversation with a specialist almost always you'll get a call back within four hours if not immediately so we i don't think you get that from too many specialties so please take advantage we we want to talk to people who need advice and ensure that people are are becoming more comfortable with alcohol and drug issues and that patients are getting the best care possible so yeah that's right it's a it's a fantastic resource uh, and as rob said not every medical specialty has this incredible specialist backup available by phone 24 hours a day so do think about that next time you wish you could get a bit of quick medical uh, advice and, and finally, if, if I've uh, if I want to speak with a specialist, we've spoken about DASAS already. But say I've got mm. a, a patient within my within my clinic on that day, and I want to uh, just just speak directly with a drug and alcohol specialist, uh, except via DASAS. How how might I be able to seek that advice? Sure, that's right. Most local health districts uh, have specialist uh, alcohol and other drug uh, services, uh, and they have available uh, typically addiction medicine specialists who, in my experience, are always supportive of local GPs in their catchment area and welcome the chance to discuss uh, a problem. And sometimes uh, that can be an advantage uh, rather than going through DASS because you're speaking with your own local addiction medicine specialist who may... uh, be more well will be more familiar with local um, special supports and services in the area uh, there's also uh, other local al- uh, other alcohol and other drug services um, counseling AOD counseling would be available with the community health services I uh, some general practices may have practice nurses who are experienced in this although you would obviously know that 
any way. Uh, and uh, there's the, the GLAD CNC. Uh, uh, LHDs may still be offering the um, GP liaison, alcohol and drug CNCs. Uh, so it's worthwhile checking with your local specialist drug and alcohol service um, what services and resources they do have to support management. Uh, there's the option to refer your patient for an outpatient drug and alcohol appointment. Um, uh, drug and alcohol services um, in your LHD may well offer specialised outpatient support such as cannabis clinics, some stimulant clinics, uh, other outpatient-based support. It's useful to be aware of the range of services uh, in uh, the alcohol and other drug services that uh, is located in your, your catchment area or local health district. Um, uh, we've mentioned, as you say, DASAS before. Um, yeah, I think I think particularly for those GPs working in a group practice, I know that often, often if we're working in a group practice, each of us as clinicians sort of fall into our area of interest, whether it's skin mm. or women's health or eating disorders or whatever else it might be. And yeah. finding finding that champion within your practice or putting up your hand and making it you and having that resource database of who the person is to call locally, that, that can be a really nice way of integrating this thing into your practice rather than making every single person learning how to do alcohol withdrawal management. Uh, yeah, finding out who that person can be within your practice or within your town uh, can, can be a nice way to approach this sort of thing. That's right. That's absolutely right. Well, I think, Deborah, that just about brings us to the end there. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to add to today's discussion about withdrawal. No, I, I think that's been very interesting to share that with you, Rob. I've really enjoyed partnering with you on that. Um, I've loved the primary care perspective you brought to this, and that's entirely right since we want to both support GPs to um, provide and feel enabled to provide safe and effective withdrawal management to their patients. Thanks, Deborah. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And thanks to all of our listeners who joined us on today's RACGP podcast about alcohol and drug withdrawal. Again, information can be found in the show notes if you want to click through, uh, have a bit of a look through there. Thanks again for joining us today, Deborah. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>